Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Amanda Joyce Hall. Today, in my interview with Dr. Devarian Baldwin, we discuss his new book entitled In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. The title is currently out with bold type books. Dr. Devarian Baldwin is a leading urbanist, historian, and cultural critic. He is the Paul E. Rather Distinguished Professor of American Studies and the founding director of the Smart Cities Lab at Trinity College. He is the author of his first book entitled Chicago's New Negroes, Modernity, the Great Migration, and Black Urban Life, published in 2007. In our interview today, Dr. Baldwin and I discuss the political economy of the American university over the 20th and 21st centuries, the ways that universities hide behind the notion of administering public goods to protect their tax-exempt status while generating astronomical profits off of the backs of working-class people, graduate student workers, underpaid, and contingent faculty. We discuss the securitization and development implications of protecting and growing university wealth and how it engenders forms of racialized plunder, racist policing, gentrification, and exploitation by the 1%. With a focus on this and more, we uncover what it means to live in the shadow of the ivory tower. Dr. Baldwin, welcome to the show and congratulations on your new book. Hey, Amanda. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. It's wonderful to have you here. I'm so excited to discuss. So let's jump in. Um, Please tell us about your journey to the study of history, cultural criticism, and African-American studies, and ultimately how you came to write in the shadow of the ivory tower. Yeah, thanks for the question. So I started out as an undergraduate um, in the Midwest. I'm from Wisconsin, like an hour north of where you grew up um, in Wisconsin. And uh, so it, funny enough, it's kind of, we think of it being in the middle of nowhere, but at the moment when I was an undergrad in the 90s, this is where Black studies, African-American studies was, was, was getting hot. So, you know, the idea of the public intellectual was on the rise. So people like Cornel West and Bell Hooks and Manny Marable, they actually were coming to Wisconsin because the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, was a hotbed for this resurgence of Black studies in the um, 80s and 90s, particularly because of people like Trisha Williams was there and doing critical race theory. Um, and so I was able to go to Madison and see these 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 stars to me. These there were stars, and 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 think about wow, they're talking about you know hip hop and popular culture and folk tales and 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 doing it from a uh, you know a political economy and doing it from a uh, uh, intellectual perspective, and that resonated with me in a in a profound way, and it made me believe that graduate school was a real possibility. So then I went on to NYU um, and majored and got my PhD in American studies, um, you know, to work with people like Robin Kelly, Trisha Rose, Mancha Diawara, um, and it, uh, uh, Stephen Gregory, may rest in peace. Um, and, you know, so it was an amazing kind of hotbed for having these, these conversations and, and people in, you know, my cohort, were like, like uh, you know, Mabel Wilson and 
um, Danette Francis and, you know, people that are doing it. Jafari Allen was an undergrad when I was a grad student there. And so uh, at NYU. So this was an amazing, amazing time. And, and, uh, and even when we didn't know it, we were all urbanist. And it, it, didn't, it didn't dawn on me until I, you know, left graduate school, left New York and went to Boston for my first job. That I realized, oh, wow, what, what we're all doing is urban studies. And, and you know, leaving the Midwest, coming to New York, it was amazing to me the degree to which uh, how New York centric people in New York are and, and, and think that black life in New York is the only black life. <laughs> and so it, it, it also, you know, expressed upon me the degree to which I was a black Midwesterner. And with that, having people come from the, from the deep South Mississippi, Arkansas, uh, Louisiana, places like that, that most of us, I'm sure your family too came from. And that inspired my first book, Chicago's New Negroes. And it, it's ironic. Usually we, we, our PhD is, is based on where we're located for our graduate program. But uh, I was frustrated by being in New York and how my black experience wasn't being reflected in New York. And so I, I had to go back home, so to speak, to do a book on Chicago and explore, you know, this alternate vision of, of rena- a black renaissance by looking at Chicago and looking at popular culture as a site for cultural production and, and uh, po- political formations for working class black migrants. And so that was a very autobiographical book. And it, it, it put me on a quest, though, as a part of what I ended up calling my Urban Knowledge Trilogy, where Chicago's New Negro was supposed to be the first book. And then the second book was supposed to be Land of Darkness, which looked at the Chicago School of Sociology and the ways in which they constructed categories of race throughout the 20th century. And the third book was supposed to be In the Shadow of the Ivy, Ta- in the Shadow of the Ivy Tower. But that book became so timely um, in you know the 2010s that um, I was able to, with the blessings of, of the editor of the other books, to push that book up. Um, but if, you know, if when I finally get done with these three books, you'll see kind of the thinking and the arc about how these books took place in terms of my thinking, my early training in philosophy and intellectual history, um, but my later training in Black studies and cultural studies and and kind of this, this general idea about kind of a materialist analysis of, of ideas and culture um, and, and how to explore issues of class and and gender and, and power through cultural and knowledge production. Um, that's been, and that remains a central thread throughout m- most of my work. Um, and in Chicago and the Midwest is always somewhere up in there <laughs> in some way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, indeed. And, you know, I have to tell you that the first time I encountered um, early drafts of this book, before it was published, um, it was in the Yale Endeavors series. And it was this critical moment at Yale where we were, students were organizing and students, were, undergraduates were protesting. This was the moment of like next Yale. Um, and I just remember your talk being a focal point because it brought, um, it brought, um, it brought a new lens kind of like through which we could like understand um, exploitation kind of in the university, especially I was the first year. So I'm like learning all about like how universities operate. And I just remember uh, going to your talk and then being like, and then thinking about what the conversations that the undergrads were having um, and then linking that to the concerns that black graduate students had. And it was just like, just being there in that room with you and thinking about, yeah, just rapacious institutions <laughs> actually really helped um, some of our fuel some of our graduate um, student organizing efforts at that time. No, I appreciate that, and I mean, go you know, look going full circle, thinking about that early period of those talks and that that thinking, and then you know later comes George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, 
and the social movements that begin to look at campus policing as much as city policing. And then a year later, I'm working with, um, you know, individuals from New Haven Rising and going down to Yale every week and working with pastors and alders and students and working with people like Lisa Lowe and other people. Um, That was a that early period was a formative period. And as a matter of fact, Jafari was on was on faculty and he brought me there, you know, so that's that's another crazy full story thing. And so all these things are, are, are connected in ways that I could never foresee. Um, and then to meet you there originally, and here we are. So um, it's, it's it's an amazing story. I, I, you know, in cultural studies and 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 also, but also in African American studies, we we make we make claims and have aspirations to do this kind of work that has social relevance and and, and political and and contemporary impact. And we, you know, to all, to, to to lesser and some greater degrees, we all do that. But I can never feel more blessed to see the degree to which this academic work has had um, such a profound impact and, and been in such profound service to real life conditions, both on and off the campus. And so I'm, I'm very proud of that as kind of a, mm-hmm. a piece of work, if you will. Right. And it just gets to the heart of what we should be doing in Black studies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So um, can you tell me, um, can you tell us more about the source base for the book perhaps share one or two of your most memorable research experiences um, and elaborate on some of the theories and frameworks that actually guide this book, namely the idea that you put forth of the university and that city with a C, not a S. Right, right. No, I appreciate that. So it actually actually goes back, I was saying a bit earlier about my urban studies training at NYU and that kind of being like this epicenter of amazing uh, Black scholars. So alongside people like Robin Mancha, um, and, um, and others that, you know, it became a centrifugal, a centrifugal force for bringing people like Stuart Hall and Juanima Lubiano and Kathy Cohen and Coben and Mercer. So getting this training on people like Fanon and, you know, public sphere theory. And this is the moment where the, you have the rise of the Black Public Sphere Collective that was responding to the racial gaps that were being seen in the work of people like Jorgen Habermas and Nancy Frazier for you philosophy you nerds out there, you'll get what I'm saying. And because I was an undergraduate degree in philosophy, I was trying to make a figure out what was going to be my connection between philosophy and cultural studies and American studies. And public sphere theory, this idea about, you know, kind of debates and discourse being embedded within public space, that was my link. That was my hook. And you can see, if you read in the shadow of the Ivy Tower, you can see that all over that book. And so figures like Henri Lefebvre and the notion of the social production of space um, was critical for me for bridging the gap between Black studies, philosophy, um, history, and American studies, and, and this kind of ma- this materiality of, of ideas in space and urban space in particular. And so, as I and the historian in me started doing the, the the intellectual history of that work and seeing, okay, wait a minute, Lefebvre wasn't just a theorist; he was rooted in the Situationist International of the '60s, where you know they're talking about these these notions of situations of reconstructing our, our everyday life and conditions through these kind of like, uh, you know, uh, in, in moments, these moments of play and kind of kabuki theater, if you will. And and then you find out that the situation is more inspired by the urban uprisings in Watts. Um, and then you begin to track back and say, well, wait a minute, you talk about urban uprisings in Watts, you got to talk about things like internal colonialism, the black power notions of internal colonialism that were rooted in Latin American ideas by people like um, Consalves and, and, and other people. And so all this, to, I mean, I'm, I'm talking fast, but 
all this stuff is connected for me because I'm like, I'm going from this spatial theory of social production of space, talking about how it's being rooted in black social movements in the 60s and 70s, but it's also being connected to this theory of internal colonialism. And it's bringing together these issues of race and space as a material site for the, for the notions of political economy, for um, ideas about black social movements, both at the local and global levels. And, and it all just, it made sense to me that I would always want to be un, um, focused on thinking about these relationships between um, knowledge production and political economy and urban communities um, and their spatial, their spatial dynamics. But in the first book, in Chicago's New Negroes, where I talked primarily about um, kind of African-Americans as uh, Black migrants as producers of knowledge and consumer culture. And then in the second book, um, I'm, talk- I'm taking the sources. Most of the work that I looked at in Chicago's New Negroes was taken, a lot of it was taken from Chicago school, you know, theories, but it, they were so rabidly racist that I had to read them against the grain. And so the second book was meant to be, let me put Chicago school on blast for its racial, its racial blind spots. And sometimes not even blind spots, but, but it's, it's embrace of racism in certain kind of ways. And so in the third book, in the Shadow of the Ivy Tower, I want to, you know, pivot again and say, it's not just about, you know, the production of knowledge, it's about institutions of knowledge production. So, so what does it mean to talk about institutions of higher education as not, so not just knowledge as material, but the materiality of knowledge producing institutions, i.e. colleges and universities. And so this is where I came with this idea. So if you think about like, you know, the Fev's notion of the social production of space um, and his, his idea about abstract space and the, I, this notion that social uh, uh, spatial relationships are reflections of the political economy of the day. So the way in which space is organized is meant to ex- articulate and express capitalist social relationships. And that came to my mind. I said, well, if you put that together with kind of, you know, what people are talking about today as racial capitalism. Um, this can be seen in the formation of higher education, especially elite, predominantly white institutions that are situated in working class communities and neighborhoods of color. That this is a racial capitalist formation whereby their prosperity is intimately tied to the wealth and the labor that they extract from the surrounding communities. And so this gave life to my notion of the universe city or universe cities as a conceptual framework to make sense of this uh, racial and spatial dynamic of political economy and urban governance. And that's kind of how I define it, is this this moment where um, colleges and universities have taken a, a growing control over the economic development and urban governance of urban America, or what I call universe cities. That this is a framework to, through which to make sense of and to give material focus to these social relationships that are managed and maintained by higher education institutions, all under the cover of the presumption that higher education serves a public good function. And so within that, then, the public good isn't just a status, it's a mechanism of wealth extraction. It serves a material function. And so that's where I kind of go with the project. Right. Let's let's dig into that. So, okay. So in the first chapter, it's called When Universities Swallow Our Cities. You make the argument that the university and its attendant expansionist building projects 
are almost a continuation of the 1960s and 1970s urban renewal projects where we see, you know, notorious state race, notoriously racist state driven initiatives. Um, and then towards the end of the century to today, through today, however, urban renewal is carried out by wealthy universities. So I'm wondering if you can tell us more about kind of like historicizing kind of like this materiality of um, of uh, the knowledge knowledge production of these institutions um, and, histor- and historicizing historicizing a little bit us a little bit for us by telling us about this triumvirate of government, university, and corporate power that we see kind of transforms the Cold War research in, uh, university into these university these universities. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. Um, so I'll try to be real quick, um, and because people can read the book, they can get more detail. So don't act like I don't. Don't act like I'm, I don't know my history, but I'm just going to go quick for everybody out there talking to people reading, listening, not you. But um, so, I mean, this this is spurred by, first of all, you know, the Cold War is this critical fulcrum for talking about these issues in the 1950s, 60s. But we know that this 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 triangulation between government, university, and corporate power goes back to the, the, the colonial era. Um, my good colleague, all of our good colleagues, Craig Wilder, made this clear in Ebony and Ivy. Um, and then we can go forward to the 19, to the 1890s and talk about the Morrill Act whereby um, the rise of the land-grant university and the, and the great indigenous scholars um, have pointed this out just last year in their piece we'll call Land Grab University. I think it's in High Country News. And they talk about the way in which the, the, the land that was accessed to, to create the endowments for uh, state land-grant universities was actually grabbed from indigenous lands through, you know, corrupt, through, through corrupt seizures and, and um, uh, uh, disingenuous uh, treaties. So there's that. But then and also we can even go to the 20s and 30s, whereby, you know, your, your home university, well, the, where you live, grew up, University of Chicago, um, had a hand in underwriting racially restrictive covenants um, to maintain property values in the, in the communities around the campus in Hyde Park, uh, uh, Woodlawn um, and Kenwood and Washington Park. So universities had a hand in maintaining and managing relationships between government and corporate power since the beginning of this country, um, what some scholars have called they serve as a parastate. But this consolidation becomes most clear during the Cold War period, where you have the rise of what Senator J. William Fulbright originally called in 67, the military-industrial-academic complex. We usually know about the military-industrial complex, but we forget that it originally had academic was embedded in it. And the reason why is because you know, we know the story separately about MIT, Stanford, U Chicago, all having a hand in creating the research that, um, you know, underwrote nuclear weaponry and other kind of military industrial production in their research. Um, so there's originally that. But the part we don't talk enough about is that there was a parallel phenomenon on the home front where higher education also became the friendly face for urban renewal in the very same time. And the language of containment, the wartime language of containment that was used during the Cold War um, in in the face of communism was used to talk about the influx of black and brown people into cities, that universities could also on the home front serve an additional function of containment on the home front. Um, And this happened through a, a lobbying group again, led by University of Chicago (laughs) that got together with a bunch of urban universities in the 50s and 60s um, that included NYU, UC Berkeley, uh, Yale, and others to make the case that, um, to make an amendment to the uh, urban urban 
uh, the Housing Act of 1949, this is 10 years after that, they wanted to make an amendment and they successfully made an amendment whereby, and it's called the 112 Credits Program, whereby any urban renewal project that is affiliated with the university will get $2 from the federal government for every local dollar invested in that project. And this money is activated five years before a project even breaks ground. So cities all over the country scrambled to create urban renewal projects that were connected to higher education institutions. Now, these served a very clear function for schools that were facing what people like Thompson Group and others have called the urban crisis. So this is the moment where you have white flight and suburbanization and capital flight going on in the the urban hinterlands. And cities are a bit too big and not not nimble enough to move in the same ways. So they use urban renewal to mow down black and brown blocks that surrounded the campus and filled them with university buildings or just kept them vacant for years as a buffer to protect city to protect universities from the so-called encroachment of working class black and brown people. And so by 1964, there were 154 projects tied to this 112 credits program, oh, 120 colleges and 75 hospitals. So like a uh, university city in, in, West, in West Philadelphia, with UPenn and Drexel got got created through this project. Um, University of Alabama at Birmingham uh, created a buffer around the black communities that surrounded that campus. Um, the, Univ- uh, the Aurora campus in Denver, this is a mixture of three universities in downtown Denver, created a process of, of, of urban renewal that mowed down uh, largely uh, Chicana neighborhoods that surrounded the downtown area um, with this program. So this program was critical. Um, so, so these universities, these urban universities held ground for decades, but then when we get to the 80s and 90s, the children of suburban sprawl and white flight, which is actually a misnomer, they were actually chasing the dollars that were going to the, to the periphery, um, they, they, started, they started having a more urban orientation. They want to come back into the city. And I lived in New York at, in the 90s when this was going on. So this is the, this is the Giuliani time. So, you know, draconian police, draconian police policies that would kick people out of uh, ATM vestibules for spending too much time in there, arresting people for, for taking up more than one seat on, on trains, on trains, uh, arresting squeegee boys, um, kicking people out of mental health facilities and turning them into high rise housing. This was all a part of urban policy, quality of life campaigns to make spaces available for the children of suburban sprawl to come back into cities. And cities all across the country, like New York, were competing with each other for this vital tax base. Now, on the other side, what do you have? You have universities that are getting less money from states at the same time. And let's be clear, whether you're a public or private university, you get public money. And so because states were giving less money to universities, they're looking for new revenue streams. So what happens when you have... uh, um, empty nesters, young professionals coming back into cities or staying in cities after school, after going to school, what's their idea of an urban experience? Fully wired, walkability and density, lectures, coffee shops, riverfront developments, retail. Basically, their idea of a city is a campus. So in this critical moment in the 90s, in the mid to late 90s, you have a moment of interest convergence between higher education administrators and city leaders trying to capture this tax base and to keep 
people in cities by turning cities into a campus. So the campus became this vital urban planning model, what Lefebvre would call abstract space. It became this planning model by which to retrofit neighborhood blocks into versions of campus as a mechanism of wealth maintenance and extraction. Now, of course, this had profoundly detrimental impacts on the residents that were already living in these blocks, largely black, mm-hmm. brown, and working class. So I'll stop right there to breathe. So, but you get the point. Yeah. Yeah. And um, just the way that you trace the interpenetration of U.S. empire and the university from the early 60s um, and thinking about it, you know, forward, like the empire needs an upgrade or like mm-hmm. the the center of the empire, you know, kind of needs an upgrade. But like, I just love the local global um, connections that you trace in the book and how you and the ones that you just outlined for us as well. Thank you. Um so yeah, so let's talk about Trinity College. Um, <laughs> Trinity <laughs> Trinity is a rural college. Yeah, it's a rural college in a capital city, um, and uh, it's one of your examples in this book. So can you tell us why you chose this as an example, um, and uh, what what the example of Trinity shows and tells us about universities? Thanks for the question. So first of all, people always ask me how what was it like writing a chapter about your own school? Were you were you in trouble? Were you scared? <laughs> you know, and I mean, you know, yeah. for, for the pros and cons of tenure and, you know, it does provide academic freedom for me to do the work, to follow the to follow the money, if so to speak. And and if to do so, I feel like I would be, uh, you know, unethical and irresponsible if I didn't talk about my, I got you know, evaluate higher education and not talk about my own positionality within all these things. And so that, that was the result. Trinity College is the result of this. And so what I mean by rural college in the capital city is the book tries to, every chapter focuses on a city and at least one school. Um, and each one has a thematic approach and difference, a, a different thematic approach. And every school is different thema- uh, organizationally. So I talk about private research one universities, public research one universities, um, and also small liberal arts colleges. So we get the in, you know, in the Midwest and the East Coast and in the Southwest. So we get the full range in terms of region, in terms of uh, university style and size. And so that's all purposeful. And so Trinity is a small liberal arts college in a small capital city, which is Hartford, Connecticut. And why I say a rural college in a capital city is because most liberal arts colleges in New England, um, what we call the, the Little Ivy. So this is like Williams, Amherst, Bowdoin, uh, and Trinity, amongst others, all were schools of the 1%, right? So we, we know, most of us know about Harvard and Yale as the Ivies, but we, we lose, sometimes we lose sight of these smaller liberal arts colleges that were just as exclusive, just as elite, um, all male, all white in the origins, and explicitly most of them were in rural areas. You know, um, to 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 in a direct way to be to to be isolated from what they consider to be the mongrel dangerous uh, uh, corruptness of city life that to be in these rural areas was to elevate to purify to uh, rejuvenate you know as part of your learning experience and so Trinity its original location where I'm I'm sit- sitting right now is this neighborhood called Frog Hollow which was a rural area but Hartford was an industrializing city is he became an immigrant city and so urbanization washed over uh frog hollow in the same way that it washed over hyde park in chicago and harlem in new york 
um, and, and Cambridge in uh, Boston. So like Harvard and UChicago um, and other schools, Trinity was originally meant to be in, the rural, in a rural location on the outskirts of the city. But urbanization washes over it. And so the story here is about, you know, for a school that doesn't have the endowment of an Ivy um, and, and also sitting within a predominantly poor brown city, how did Trinity navigate the processes of coexisting, of, inflict, of, of inflicting its influence um, on a city with limited resources? And so the project in the chapter in particular focuses on what I call ambivalence, um, this, this idea of wanting to separate most of its life but not having the capacity to do so. And so how does it deploy the language of community or urban engagement in ways that look like direct partnership, but are driven by the college interest. And so in this chapter, a key fu- function is on the president. Right. The shifting- <laughs> I was... Go ahead. Yeah. What are you going to say? No, I mean, I was, that's one thing that I learned from, from this is that just the, the different regimes of presidents and how they matter um, and how they can fully just change the face of the university. It's so funny because whenever we, you know, organize and protest in universities today, we go to the president and they're like, we can't do anything. You know, they're always like, we can't do anything. <laughs> um, but what this chapter shows so clearly is that they are power brokers with so much decision-making power, um, even independent of the board of trustees. Mm, Yes. And I, and I will say just to be fair that um, the board of trustees is a hidden force that we still need to keep our eye on, but the role of the president to shape the policy of the board to uh, be what today we might call a a influencer (laughs) um, is, is vital. And, and especially in schools of the size of like Trinity, you know, where, you know, there's the student body is only 2000 students, uh, but has an extremely wealthy board of trustees. Almost all of them at one point were on wall street um, or, or some other kind of financial broker. Um, and so the story here is the degree to which depending on presidents, the political will of the school could change. So in the nineties, um, Trinity hired a gentleman by the name of Evan Dobell, who did not have a university pedigree. He had worked under Jimmy Carter at one point, and then he was a Republican mayor of a small city in Massachusetts at another point. So he was a personality. And the problem was that for decades, the university had put its head in the sand and saw Hartford kind of go up in flames all around it because of white flight, because of divestment, um, because of um, a, a profound influx of Latinx residents coming to the city when capital had left the city. Um, there was, you know, as we all know, when when the economic base leaves the city, uh, uh, working class folk will figure out a way to get money. And this is the this is the height of the drug of the drug game. And uh, of of and so in this in this period, blocks were hot all around Trinity College, and for decades the university tried to ignore it. But in the nineties. Uh, you know, elite 1% kids stopped coming to the school. And so they had to figure out how what how to engage in what the president called enlightened self-interest. How do we invest in the neighborhoods surrounding the campus in a way that benefits our own interest? But unlike some other schools that, in, that engaged in this, um, Evan Dobell offered a, a very interesting approach where he's like, you know, I want to engage in what he called geographic affirmative action, saying that it shouldn't just be 
that we develop our campuses in a way and, and create housing just for university affiliates. We need to create affordable housing so that the people who live here can stay here but have a quality of life. And so they invested in what was called the, the learning corridor as a part of what he called Trinity Heights. And so it, it began with quite auspicious aspirations to do the right thing, but he was big on talking, low on resources. And so what ultimately happened is that it failed. It stopped in mid-construction. And then most of the faculty and the board who were never on board in the first place, they re, re, reinserted the notion of we are not a social work program. We are a liberal arts institution. And for what, what that meant for them was turning back inward and focusing just on the campus and keeping their backs turned to the campus. And so as I talk about in the book, that went, we see a series of presidents and programs that created you know, uh, luxury housing for students, uh, a community sports center that never really served the community, um, a range of projects that, that were created in the name of urban engagement, but they were really meant to serve the interests of the college. Um, and so right now we're at a crossroads. We're, we're discovering, like almost all schools, that many of the buildings on campus are named after, after former slaveholders. Um, and that, you know, the relationship that we have with, our, with the community here is not the best. And there's a, because of what happened last year with the racial uprisings, people are saying, put your money where your mouth is. And we don't want more talk about urban engagement. And to be quite honest, people are reading my book and they're saying, you know, we need to do we need to engage in a more structural and a more uh, uh, equitable and just way with the neighborhoods that surround the campus. And to be fair, you know, I've, I've, I've spoken with the board of trustees just about a month ago and, you know, you know, I'm not sure how far it's going to go, but they're listening. They want to talk. They, they know about my smart cities lab and they are open to thinking about different ways of engaging with the city. So we'll see, but it's going to be a hard road to hold because of this legacy of liberal arts, having met here on this campus in closure, turning inward. Right. So right. that's where we are. Okay, well, let's let's uh, move on to kind of talk about the opposite of that, not the enclosure, but, the, but what we see in New York City in the schools that ate New York. Um, and here you outline kind of the expansionist plans of Columbia University and NYU. And for me, this chapter really strongly outlined the imperial logics of the modern university. So can you tell us a little bit about um, these expansionist projects, NYU 2031 and uh, uh, the university, um, Columbia University's, ex yeah, Manhattan. I was like, what was it called? Because I remember, I remember in like 20... Uh, I don't know if it was like 2013, um, but I was there and yeah, and there was uh, flyers going around to like graduate students, to graduate students. And we were like trying to figure out like, or trying to start organizing against the eminent domain. So just, yeah, tell us about, tell us about um, that and the campaigns that resisted them, how they tried to prevent this expansion and what we should ultimately make of kind of what ended up happening, which is that, you know, Manhattan Bill is happening and um, NYU is expanding. So yeah, just to talk to us more about that. Well, first of all, it's really important to understand that this, the great, I guess, lessons that I want to highlight in this chapter is that both West Harlem and Greenwich Village, neither, neither community was against campus expansion, but they both wanted to do it in a way that included the interest and the, um, and the, and benefits of the community. In West Harlem, 
there was already a community board plan. There was already a community plan, 197A, that was on the books that was arguing for a mixed development community that would include a mixture of light industry, affordable housing, and campus buildings. And Columbia came in and said, nope, we don't want that. We want the whole area targeted for a campus. Um, downtown, where it's not, a, it's not actually a working class community or community of color, this is a, this is a community that had been the domain of hippies and, and other ne'er-do-wells, but has become one of the most expensive communities in the, in the country, Greenwich Village, they had the political power and the influence to actually push back. You would think to push back um, and say that, you know, listen, um, there was a history in this community that we fought for. The battles that people know about in a separate way between Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses, a lot of those battles were fought right here in Greenwich Village. This is the reason why the village exists the way that it does. And we were able to win some zoning laws and some limits on development precisely because of those older battles. Um, and they still, in the present, they lost to a university. In both cases, you have very strong community boards. Community board number nine in, uh, in, in Harlem and community board number two in Greenwich Village that explicitly said, we do not support the plans as demonstrated or as outlined by the universities, these full-on takeovers of our neighborhoods. They both call them company town projects, which is interesting. Um, and But the problem is that in both cases, community boards are advisory. They don't have legislative power. The power is held, number one, with the zoning, with the, with the planning board, the planning office in New York City, and then ultimately with city council. So in both cases, the community boards voted against these projects, but the relationships between these universities and city government, many of the representatives went to these schools. They had relationships with these schools. Again, my whole point earlier about, about a kind of um, interest convergence between you know, turning cities into campuses, they share in those visions. And so this becomes a story of democracy denied. Um, and in the case of in the case of, of Columbia, as you pointed out earlier, we don't just see democracy denied, denied. we see straight up gangsterism in the sense that um, Columbia University, in order to, they tried to enact eminent domain. Now, the funny thing about eminent domain is that um, the, the critical point is that they began this project full on in 2005. What happened just one year earlier? Well, 2004 was the legal case Kilo versus City of New London. And this case is critical because previously with eminent domain, a government agency could force the paid seizure of privately owned land, but only for public use. And use is critical here. So roads, public utilities, schools, you could only you know pay a, a private owner fair market value if it was going to be used for public use. But with the 2004 case of Kilo versus City of... The conversation shifted from public use to public benefit. And so now a, a, a private entity could use the government to seize someone else's private land if it had the impact of creating jobs, increasing tax revenue, or quote-unquote revitalizing a depressed area. So the point here is that you could engage in a project of eminent domain and it could benefit tax revenue or jobs, but it doesn't, but the people in the community don't have access to the project. And on top of that, they might not even be there to, to, to benefit from it because it doesn't say jobs for the existing residents 
or increase tax revenue for the existing residents. It could be the residents that come to work on these projects, the professors, the researchers, the students, et cetera. So this was critical. So it's not a mistake that this case came out in 2004. And in 2005, Columbia ramped up its project to engage in eminent domain. Now, here's the gangsterism. In order to enact eminent domain, you have to have a government agency sign off on it. In the case of New York, that was the Empire State Corporation. What Columbia did, and this got this got exposed by props to student journalists at The Spectator. They engaged some, in some investigative journalism and found out that the university had paid the development corporation's development costs and research costs to figure out if the area was right for eminent domain. So basically, this is an act of direct collusion. And and they were able to go forward with this. They underwrote the, the very plan that would designate the area as blighted. And they were able to go forward with this by when they got exposed, they hired a quote unquote third party to conduct the study. Uh, And again, a party, another company that they had consulted with in previous projects. And the surprise, surprise, they came to the same conclusion that the area was blighted and hence right right for urban, urban, uh, eminent domain. So, I mean, this is just straight gangsterism. And then in the NYU case, um, the community board too fought against the development. Now the project, the problem with 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 NYU's development was that it didn't veer too much beyond the three super blocks that the university already owned, but they had had a history of buying properties throughout Greenwich Village and knocking down historic buildings and and building out of out of out of um, out of zoning out of zoning ordinances. So building high and, and broader than what the zoning ordinances allowed, and then just in, at the back end, getting a variance from city government. So the Guinness talked about collusion in a more indirect way because of the relationships between the university and city officials. And so the, the zoning ordinances that had been fought for in the 50s and 60s with the people that followed Jane Jacobs, when NYU built on, their, on the blocks they owned, they broke those zoning ordinances. They built higher than what they were supposed to. They um they they violated use or use uh, limitations. Places that were that were zoned for uh, for residential got used and built for commercial. So these things are a little are, are not as egregious as what happened um, in West Harlem, but they just show the way in which universities, with the power of the state, with you know in the function of a parish state, can fully disregard public oversight and existing ordinances and conditions. And so coming out of this, activists, planners, et cetera, said, this can no longer hold. We need community oversight board. The planning, the New York City planning office must have a subdivision that focuses just on higher education expansions. And it must have not just advisory capacity, but legislative capacity to oversee, deny, shrink, tailor any kind of higher education expansion project that is taking shape within a residential community. And so that hasn't happened yet, but that has become a huge lesson. Um, And we see calls for that in New York, in Chicago, in LA, in Atlanta, that there must be greater oversight, but it it cannot be advisory. It's got to have legislative teeth. And so 
as you as you mentioned before, this kind of you know this imperial force, this the 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 privatization of government has was made the most clear to me in the New York City story, both uptown and downtown. And you would have thought that the story would have been different with a a, a black and brown working class neighborhood in Harlem compared to Greenwich, the elite affluent Greenwich Village. And in both cases, in different ways and to, and to different degrees, to be sure. But the university as a presumed to be this economic driver, this public good anchor institution hides behind its educational status to engage in rapacious private developing and expansion. And this is a reoccurring story throughout the book about the degree to which the uh, public good presumption becomes a mechanism by which to usurp public authority and oversight and to engage in for-profit uh, wealth hoarding and spatial and, and community expansion. Right, exactly. And I think it's it's so important too, you're, you're um, kind of uh, un- uncovering all of the tactics because University of Chicago, which is where we're going to turn to next um, on the South side of Chicago, which is where I'm from, um, uses the same uh, types of taxic- tactics. There's the same entrance conversion. There's the same... Um, you know, discussion of High Park being blighted. <laughs> um, and that becomes a way that um, they take over Harper Court. Um, so let's let's uh, transition into talking about that, um, but particularly with uh, the way that these universities um, secure um, and police um, the communities that they embed themselves in. Um, and... Yeah. And so I'll just leave it at that. Um, and yeah, and I'll maybe add some things as you as you. Discuss. Yeah, sure. I'm sure you have lots to say about this. But um, so if I haven't said this already, but, you know, it should be it's worth stating that colleges and universities have become the biggest employers, real estate holders, healthcare providers and surprisingly policing agents in major cities and towns all across our country. And there's no clearer example of this than the University of Chicago. The University of Chicago holds the second largest private security force in the world outside of the Vatican. So what does that mean? Why? Why such a a vast policing apparatus? Some would say, well, because the South Side is violent. And there is violence on the South Side. But with, as the latest shootings on campus just showed, that with the largest police, one of the largest police forces in the world, um, adding more cameras and armed security is not serving the function of public safety. What it's doing is that it serves as the front line in the, it becomes the blunt force object of the soft power of expanding university amenities throughout the South side of Chicago and other cities as well. So the combination of campus police and campus expansion serves a velvet hammer approach where retail and amenities like Harper Court or the Astor Gates's uh, theater, let's be clear, um, follow behind a militarized version of campus police who secure various sections of the South Side for university development. 
So these things work hand in hand. This is a, 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 a double barrel of institutional violence. First, there is the militarized occupation, extraterritorial policing that dictates the behaviors and activities of residents. It criminalizes uh, civilian blocks that then sets the table for brick and mortar expansion of the campus that follows thereafter. And in the chapter, as you know, I spend time early on talking to Brandy Parker at detail. Um, and this is a young brother who is not affiliated with the university, but who has to go, as you know, to get to the train line, has to go cut through high, uh, through the campus to get to on the other side of the midway and or the, or the express bus. And he has to go through campus and he got stopped, uh, you know, all the time. Young black with a mohawk. What are you doing on campus, et cetera? Um, and so he figured out these, the, he had these elaborate, you know, uh, uh, maps and blueprints of how to avoid campus. But as he got older, he's from, he lives in Woodlawn, which is, for those that don't know, which is the neighborhood to, directly to the south of, of Hyde Park. Um, but as he got older, the University of Chicago police jurisdiction actually covered all of Woodlawn as well. So he couldn't, no matter where he went, he couldn't escape UCPD. All of, his entire life was was covered under the under the uh, uh, under the the doctrine, the jurisdiction of the university. His whole life was in Chicago, and so this became um, just a a lens through, through which to understand the existence of life for Black and Brown people that live in the shadow of uh, uh, U Chicago, if you will, and the role that police serve in that phenomenon. As I, as I detail in the book and talk about elsewhere. When we look at the major crimes on campuses, what are they? Sexual violence and substance abuse and petty theft. UCPD and all campus police do a horrible job at enforcing and policing those crimes. Why? If at all. Yeah, if at all. What university wants to publicize that they have a campus full of white criminals? Policing in that, doing good policing with the major crimes is bad for university business. But what's good for university business is to say, okay, students and families and investors in pharmaceuticals and in military defense weaponry and in med tech, all the work that's done on university research laboratories, it's okay to come here. We're safe for investment. And the way we do that is by serving as an occupying force in the expanded campus terrain outside the main campus and to say to all those people, you can come here, you can re- you can invest, you can research, you can do the work of higher education as a for-profit entity and you will be safe. But the point here is that, but those communities, the argument is that, that these police are doing safety, are engaging safety for those communities. But the safety those communities need is food security, job security, healthcare security. We got to remember, it wasn't until 2010, after years of protest, that the UC hospital system actually had a gunshot wound eligible trauma care center because of protest. So the so so those are the kinds of public safety that these communities need. Even the most recent uh, gun, uh, gun, the gun violence, and I don't want to downplay it. It's it's horrible. I don't wish gun people dying at the hands of a gun by anybody. But lots of people die in the South Side and in, in, in cities across the country. And the need here, and, 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 and people are crying out, these crimes are crimes of poverty in a large degree. And so 
UCPD and campus policing everywhere, they don't police well based on campus crimes. They don't police well based on community, community needs because that's not their function. Their function is brand management. And it's funny, I wrote a piece about you, Chicago, and it's kind of an introduction to this book in the Chronicle of Higher Education 2017, you know, where I had some knowledge, but some of it was speculation from what I've seen from the outside. Within weeks, I got a call from a brother who's in the book, who's in the chapter. He wanted to remain anonymous to protect his own. He, he worked in the Office of Community Engagement in Chicago. And he said to me, what you have said in this article, this is 2017, is just the tip of the iceberg. And then he went on to offer me hours of his time to lay out how what I'm saying about the policing, about community engagement, as all Harper Court, as all brand management so that you Chicago can p- compete with its peers, Harvard, Stanford, Emory, Princeton, you, you know, you name it. That that urban engagement and this expansion of campus is all about attracting research dollars, researchers, investors in the for-profit arm of university business development. And even the retail, the, the luxury housing, the, camp, the high-end campus housing, all a part of the business model. And, and he laid it out for me. And if you read the book, you'll see how he revealed, um, you know, to, to great, you know, danger on his part in terms of his job security, if he ever gets found out, um, how this actually functions. He confirmed it for, for me, for all, for all of us. And so it's, it's, it's a profound story. It's, it's, it's really... Um, Interesting. I mean, one thing he said is that, you know, uh, uh, a brick doesn't get laid on the south side without UChicago's approval. This, this, this is a feudal, this is a feudal relationship. They are the governing force in, 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 on the south side. It's, it's so true. And the, the 53rd Street that I grew up knowing is not what, what 53rd Street looks like today. And I remember that the, um, the changes started, like the visual changes in the built environment started when the Dunkin' Donuts on 53rd Street became the headquarters of the Chicago Police, the University of Chicago Police Department. And then after that, like everything that went eastward was part of that brand management strategy, you know, building luxury housing, luxury restaurants, like all these things that were never there before. But the first you know, brick that was laid or, or taken over. The first building that was taken over was the Dunkin' Donuts that then housed the University of Chicago Police. Mm. Um, I wanted well, just to, to... Just to add, just add, quickly mm-hmm. add what you're saying, mm-hmm. you know, um, everyone knows about the old Harper Court where the brothers and sisters used to play chess. Yes. And, and that was one of the first things that got kicked. First, they went to the Borders bookstore across the street that became Promontory, right? Mm-hmm. And so they got kicked out. And then there were a couple of um, a graffiti uh, walls that 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 young artists were allowed to, to, to do graffiti on. Those got shut down. Um, kids used to post up on 53rd Street in the in the low rent chicken shacks and other places. Those got pushed pushed further away. And so, you know, and to be you know, be fair, you have black owned businesses on the new 53rd Street. But the scale, the upscaleness, it's middle class black life and, and no disrespect to that. But there was a there was a. The, the, the price points of retail on the old 53rd Street could actually meet the needs of working class Hyde Park residents in a way that the current Harper Court does not. So it's, 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 it's diverse racially, but not socioeconomically. Mm-hmm. For sure. 
For sure. Um, and then there were um, the other thing I wanted to say just about brand management. Um, the okay, so one of the the, the narrative, one of the anecdotes or things that really actually happened though, um, in the in the book is uh, the infiltration of the um, the uh, the the campus movement, the campus movement, yeah, to get the trauma center. I think it was that. I think it was that movement um, was so. Uh, it was just so unbelievable to me. Um, so I just, I just want you to maybe just talk about that very briefly. What does it mean when campus police are infiltrating campus movements? And is right. it's in the name of brand management, but like mm-hmm. something it's much more sinister is going on there. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's a function of the fact that you the university like Chicago has been allowed to serve as its own governing function um, for so long that it had the audacity to believe that in a, in a sort of CIA function, it could infiltrate campus protests for the university medical facilities to actually serve the neighborhoods. The audacity is such a thing, right? To believe that they should serve the functions. And so they infiltrate, they have operatives that infiltrate the protest and pretend to be student activists that ultimately get found out by other activists and 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 uh, journalists, student journalists. And then that becomes a window into there being a deeper examination of the rapacious rapacious role in which UCPD functions throughout the community and throughout the campus. That that exposed, that expose about infiltrating that, that protest actually opened the door for a much deeper dive into the role that UCPD had in managing both students and residents um, in a profound degree. Right, yeah. right. Oh, okay. We could spend so we need a whole episode to talk about Chicago, um, and you know maybe we'll do that later. But for now, I definitely want to get to. Um, I think I'm going to combine just like the next two questions I have for you, and if you could tell us a little bit about uh, out uh, like moving out west, you go and you look at Arizona State University, and you're discussing kind of the manifest destiny of um, the AS. Uh, the ASU downtown, um, which is an expansionist project led by that university. Tell us a little bit about that, but then also tell us about this alternate, alternative international model for university education that you saw um, at the University of Winnipeg in Canada. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. I'll be real quick. So with ASU and, 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 you know, in Arizona in general, it's the wild, wild west. Real estate is king. And, and, and what did it mean? And so in, in this world where real estate is king, what did it mean for a public research one university to become to be one of the biggest real estate developers in the Southwest? That's the question that drives this piece is that everyone affiliated with the university had dabbled in some version of real estate acquisition and development. And the university was no different. And so because of the shrinking state budgets that were being distributed to the university, uh, ASU, with the help of its president, Michael Crow, became more entrepreneurial and they found a economic gray area whereby um, uh, university-owned land that's tax-exempt, they could host private industry on this land. So, for example, uh, State Farm Insurance, um, its, its regional headquarters, is the biggest development in Arizona, and it sits on tax-exempt ASU land. Now, how does this benefit ASU? Well, in exchange for the tax exemption that the university transferred to this private company, it charges State Farm and other private companies 
um, like retirement communities and other kinds of uh, hotel hotel chains. It, it charges them a lower fee. And with that fee, the university is able to do whatever it wants without universe, without public oversight. So building football stadiums, hiring, if you're a football fan, hiring Herm Edwards from the New York Jets to be the coach of their, 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 their college team. So it's able to engage in building out amenities, right, that can attract investors and, and researchers and students and their families. And like I said before, because it's Arizona, they actually have built out a private for-profit uh, 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 retirement community that sits on the campus and it's tax exempt. And again, the lower fee goes to the university to do whatever it wants. And so this has become primarily a big real estate venture. Uh, it's the biggest university in the country with over 50,000 students. And they have, the students have become basically a captive market. They, you know, if, if you live on campus, you have to get the meal plan. And so, you, 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 so you're, you're locked in and you're a captive audience for the chains that are affiliated with the university. And uh, this has become a big real estate deal. And so if you want to know more about that, this, this, this manifest destiny and seeing, and then as they move downtown, they wanted to clear out because the, 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 the main campus of Tempe is landlocked. And because they want to be more entrepreneurial, they want to make space for more profit oriented research. And so they need to get rid of students. So they built a downtown campus to make way for 10,000 students to be downtown. As they came downtown and built out that campus, those buildings are also tax exempt. And the, the 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 costs get passed on to small businesses in the town in the downtown area, and those who live there. So they pick up the burden um, to pay for public schools and road maintenance, all the things that get paid for by property taxes. That burden gets passed on to the small businesses and the residents in the downtown area because when the universities come there, they don't pay property taxes, and that goes and that benefits their their bottom line. So that's that's kind of it's it's a it's a it's a full on manifestation of what happens when a university becomes a real estate developer in the most extreme form. So we have that as this extreme example, but then we turn north to uh, the University of Winnipeg um, as an alternative vision. I went there a couple of years ago to offer my critiques and my my kind of warnings about higher education, and I met people like Sherman Kreiner and Jeremy Reed. Sherman Kreiner has since passed on; may he rest in peace as well. Um, but they went into detail saying, yeah, we get how it works, but we're doing something here a little bit different. But to be fair, uh, both, you know, Sherman was a booster for his new development, rightfully so. But in speaking with uh, on the ground activists and residents, they pointed out that even the good that was happening at uh, University of Winnipeg was not divorced from social, social movement organizing. That a decade and a half earlier, the University of Winnipeg had done the same things that U.S. universities had done. They built out new projects, demolished uh, old buildings that have served the largely indigenous communities that surrounded the campus. They built with the backs of, of campus buildings to the face of the, of the community. They had done the same things. But their demographic changed in the 2010s. It went from 6,000 to 10,000 students, and it went from largely white commuter students who left the campus at sundown to the suburbs to largely indigenous working class families that lived right in the heart of the, of the campus and surrounding the, surrounding the campus. So what came with that was that they understood early on to their credit that in dealing with working class indigenous students, we're not just served, the, the, their, wealth, their, their health and well-being is not just the individual student. 
their health and well-being is tied to their family. And so if they're going to do well and keep paying their tuition and supporting this campus, we're going to have to build out housing that meets the needs of working class families. So they did this mixed housing project that has dormitory on top and townhouses on bottom on the bottom with um, encouraging the student government to increase uh, uh, lots in the child care center that's on campus for for students that are uh, working class and largely indigenous. They're building, they built out other developments that are a combination of premium rate, affordable rate, uh, market rate, and rent geared to income rate. And the units in the building are interchangeable. You can't tell what unit you're going to go into. The ventilation in this building has been retrofitted for indigenous smudging practices. They have free Wi-Fi in the common areas if you can't afford to build to pay Wi-Fi in your individual units. So they had to retrofit their understanding of engagement and sustainability because their demographic was changing. And this is an important story for higher education in the U.S. as well, because my school costs $80,000 a year right now. And for years, there were families that could pay that on the day of, of coming on campus. But those families are not having children anymore. So if these schools want to stay alive, they're going to have to begin to reorient their vision of higher education around the communities that are producing college-age children, which are largely Black, Brown, and Pell-eligible. And so the kind of supports that Winnipeg has created to meet the needs of not just the student, but their families are going to have to be reproduced in the U.S. if these elite schools that don't have $40 billion endowments like UPenn and Yale and Harvard, if they want to survive. So I feel like you, Winnipeg, is a, is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen, what's going to have to happen in the states if these schools are going to want to survive. Right. Great. You know, there's a there's a more um, yeah a more sinister angle to this international dimension that you introduced um, when I was uh, at uh, the University of the Witwatersrand. Um, there was a dis- yeah there was discussions of introducing a private police force to campus, and um, it this come this came on the heels of a security guard actually killing a student um, in a demo- in a campus demonstration. Um, but what had concerned many faculty and students was that uh, the University of the Viswaters von Witz was taking its its uh, taking notes from the United States and from U.S. U.S. securitization models at universities, U.S. policing models really at universities. So. Um, and so I, just yeah, wanna, it's, I wanna add to your to, to listeners mm-hmm. too that in the book in the first chapter, it, I talk about we mentioned about black studies. This project is profoundly shaped by black studies precisely because in the 60s and 70s, in the age of revolutionary movements, black studies was not about what today it has not it has become, but we we some have tried to make it DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, diversifying curriculum and faculty and things like that. From its inception, black studies was saying, and I mentioned the cases whereby it meant like, you know, building out affordable housing for residents in the surrounding neighborhoods. It Black studies meant at, at, uh, at, at Malcolm X College in Chicago on the West Side. It meant firing campus police and hiring a Black-owned private, unarmed private security team um, to help engage in real public safety. In New York at City University, it meant open it meant uh, free tuition and open admissions because it, they believed that higher education had to make up for the horrible teaching that went on in secondary schools. So Black studies at its inception had a vision 
of higher education that was never fully followed, and hence the reason why we are still fighting these same battles with what I'm calling universities. Right. I want to put that out there as well. No, absolutely. It's 100 uh, percent. Just a wonderful point. Um, so let's yeah. So let's talk about the Smart Cities Lab. Um, and perhaps how you bring how you bring some of uh, kind of like yeah that that vision for uh, what the Black universe, the Black Studies vision for universities was supposed to be. And how do you bring that to the lab? Tell us more about it. Feel free to shout out or highlight organizations or groups that um, are doing great work and are really in the vanguard of challenging these rapacious institutions and bringing forth. Um, that vision uh, that we want to see today. Well, thank you for that. I mean, it's funny. Uh, the Smart Cities Lab started out as primarily just being, I had all this, 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 these mountains of research and I wanted to offer it as information sharing to different communities around the country. Um, and, and it's, it's billed as, you know, we, we, we research and consult on best practices for building uh, just and equitable communities, um, urban, ur- equitable urban communities with a special focus on uh, higher education driven development. But after the summer of 2020, community groups are like, look, bro, we don't, we don't just need your consultation. We need your agency. We need your advocacy. We need you to do more. And so since then, uh, build, building on earlier social campus community social movements like Nos Quedamos at Columbia and uh, NYU Faculty Against the Sexton Plan and the Campaign for Equitable Policing, which became Cops Off Campus and you know the Invisible Institute on the South Side and the IRA 8 in Cincinnati, and Students Against Private Policing at Johns Hopkins. These are earlier movements that, I, that, 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 that inspired the Smart Cities Lab. Um, building off of those groups, I started doing and working directly with communities to the Smart Cities Lab, offering advocacy, consultation. Um, so for example, recently, you probably know this, uh, um, uh, after years of advocacy, um, New Haven Rising, which is a community community campus collective in New Haven, pushed Yale to offer greater payments for their the taxes they don't pay, right? To compensate for the losses to the city that don't come when universities remain property tax exempt. Well, I worked directly with them, went down there every weekend, consulted with them, talked about them in articles I wrote about. So that's an amazing story that I, I love to to highlight what they were able to do even though the money is not nearly enough based on a $40 billion endowment, but you know, we're moving forward. Um, I also work with you uh, at, at, in the, in the university city area of, of Pennsylvania, of Philadelphia with the black bottom tribe, that community that got fully wiped out and displaced um, when you Penn and Drexel built university city in the sixties and seventies. And, but there's some are still back are still there on the edges and I'm working with them to figure out ways to come back and to make you Penn and Drexel um, become more responsible to the communities they had a hand in directly displacing. We're working with uh, council uh, council person Jamie Gautier, and she just put forward through city council. It just got through um, review for a affordable housing overlay that would require because that that area right now is hot for developers, particularly in med tech and pharmaceuticals that want to work with the universities. So it's it's creating uh, housing pressures on the few remaining spaces of affordable housing. So we discovered that there were broken agreements from the 60s and 70s that UPenn and Drexel never met. And so we're advocating with the community, with, with council people, with politicians and activists to engage and create policies of urban planning and zoning that will require the universities and their partner developers to be more responsible and engage in development that will be able to include residents as compared to displaced residents. 
And so those are just, those are just two examples. I also work with Save Berkeley Neighborhoods in Berkeley, California, and Somerville Stands Together in Somerville, Massachusetts, all fighting for some of the same things, fighting against displacement. And that's become the key, the key phrase for the Smart Cities Lab, that you know, usually we think about smart cities, we think about uh, uh, tech, technology and infrastructure, and we forget about people. And so the, the mantra of the Smart Cities Lab is that the smartest cities develop without displacement. And that's been a call all over the country that we are not against development. We want universities around, but they must serve in the function of more like a commons. They must be available, accessible um, in exchange for all the money that you don't pay into the cities that, that, that builds out your prosperity. You need to make yourselves open to us and available to us and in service to us. And so this has been the mantra and the vision and the cause and the calling that I feel like my work has taken on. And it could be the thing I could end up doing for the rest of my career is, is being a service to these communities. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud to do that. Wow, beautiful. Um, I know you are already doing so much, but I do want to ask you before we go, um, what are you working on next? You mentioned your trilogy. Um, tell us about some of the, um, yeah, like what, what projects, what book projects or articles can yeah. we expect to see from you? Sure. So I've been, I've been doing a lot more uh, uh, popular writing, you know, in, in, so around this project. So that's, that's going to keep going, I hope, and, and continue. But as far as more academic work, that second book on the Chicago School of Sociology, um, Land of Darkness, it's, it's under contract with Oxford University Press. They're still, thank, thank you, Oxford. They've been so patient waiting for that book because of this book, you know. But um, in this book, it's, it, it, it uses Chicago School as a case study. Um, we talked so much about how Chicago School sociology was critical in constructing modern ideas about race. But what I say is that we don't look at how anxieties about urban racial difference at the turn of the 20th century actually shaped the Chicago school. And so in this project, I explore how urban race relations during the Jim Crow era shaped both the academic study and the policymaking of the modern city, with Chicago school being the dominant force in shaping sociology, social scientific textbooks, classes, but also having a hand in shaping urban renewal policy um, throughout the country, being the academic arm of redlining and restrictive covenants. And so I, I want to tell that story, how the Chicago school had a hand in this, primarily because they were shaped by urban anxi anxieties about urban race relations. In short, they converted. So at, at a moment where cities are facing multiracial immigration. And by that, I mean, not just black and Asian and Latinx. I mean, Irish, Italian, Jewish. When, when those groups were not ethnicities, ethnicities they were racist. Uh, city leaders say, well, where do we have a, a domestic case where you have more than one race coexisting and there's quote unquote functionality, efficiency? And everyone began to look at the Jim Crow South as a model for peaceful racial cohabitation, including the Chicago school. So they go down to Tuskegee and they study Booker T. Washington and his vision of separate but equal. And so in short, Jim Crow becomes the model for urban studies through the Chicago school. It becomes the model for ideal social relationships in the emergence of U.S. sociology. And this is a story that's never been told, I mean, in the same way. And so it, it might be for some it might be kind of nerdy, but it's, it's, it's exciting to me to kind of do a material racial analysis of the rise of the social sciences as a field, 
has built on the vision of Jim Crow urban uh, social relationships. Uh, that is brilliant. What a what a valuable and important critique. Um, so I can't wait <laughs> until you get that book out. Dr. Baldwin, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today um, and for speaking with us about your brilliant and wonderful book that everyone should read, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. Thank you so much. It was a great time talking to you. <laughs>